0: Hi, this is Krista Potratz. We are hoping that you're having a wonderful holiday season. Today, we're going to play one of our previous episodes, The Baby Boys of Bethlehem. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will be back next week with an all-new episode. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We'll see you back next week. On today's episode...
1: Yeah, and I want to go back to the two-year-old thing. Just imagine the different emotional feel. So Herod, Herod ordered some of the children to be killed. Herod ordered two-year-old boys and younger to be killed. Both hurt, the second hurts a little bit more. It does. Yeah, as you mm-hmm. begin to define it and you close it in and do it, it.
2: Welcome to the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. People today face many opportunities and struggles when it comes to issues of life and death, marriage and family, health and science, We're here to bring a fresh, biblical perspective to these issues and more. Join us now for Life Challenges.
0: Hello and welcome back. I am Krista Potratz and I'm joined by Pastors Bob Fleischman and Jeff Samuelson. Today we have a... Heavy topic. If you are listening to this podcast on December 28th, it is Holy Innocence Day. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Essentially, though, it is the remembrance day for when Herod had the baby boys of Bethlehem killed. And so this is the day that we remember the baby boys of, of Bethlehem. We're going to go through the account today and then make some connections to to life issues as well. As much as I wish it was the Life Easy Breezy podcast, it's the Life Challenges podcast. And there are very difficult moments of life and uh, difficult moments of scripture too. And I think we do a disservice if we don't ever talk about them or look at them too. With that being said, we're going to start with you, Jeff. You could read the account for us in scripture of this event.
3: Okay, uh this is all found in Matthew chapter 2. The actual account of the murder of the baby boys is just a few verses, but it's hard to understand without the context. So I'm actually going to read most of chapter 2, and this is, includes basically the, the epiphany story of the coming of the, the Magi. And I'm going to be reading from the Evangelical Heritage Version. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, when Herod was king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. He gathered together all the people's chief priests and experts in the law. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, because this was written through the prophet, You, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are certainly not least among the rulers of Judah because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and found out from them exactly when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report to me, so that I may also go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Then the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stood still over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with overwhelming joy. After they went into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Since they had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, because Herod will search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he was furious He issued orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding countryside from two years old and under. This was in keeping with the exact time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more.
0: So, Jeff, in this account that you read, too, you did read uh, a lot of the, the surrounding events that were going on. And is there anything that we can draw out from the context of these, these verses?
3: I'd say one of the first things is knowing something about the character of Herod. Part of it we get from history, part of it is you know, right there in the text, but Herod was a bad guy. He was called a king, but he was king of Judea basically because he'd got in good with the Romans. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean, which basically meant he was an Edomite from people related to the Jews, but long, long animosity going back centuries there. And because he didn't come to power in any way that was recognized by the people he ruled because it was kind of forced on them. He was always incredibly nervous about his position. And so when he hears from these wise men that, oh, a king has been born here, and it is the king that all these Jews have been talking about as a Messiah for all this time, that makes him nervous. And that makes the people of Jerusalem nervous, because when Herod is nervous, he does bad things. Uh, The wise men, of course, they probably don't know much of this. They're foreigners. That's why it takes them being warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod, for them to realize, oh, he probably doesn't have the good intentions that he said he had when he said he wanted to go and worship the king with us. Joseph apparently knows something about Herod also, because he wastes absolutely no time when he's warned by an angel in a dream, get up and take the the child and and his mother. He leaves in the middle of the night because it it, it is urgent. And then, of course, what do we see? We see that Herod, because he is so concerned about what's best for him and thinks only of that, he arranges the murder of of these boys in, in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas.
0: And so what is then the history of Holy Innocence Day?
3: Christian church first observed this f- festival, the Feast of um, the Holy Innocence, within the, f- the early centuries of, of the church, and, and it definitely was like fixed on a day by, I believe, the 5th century.
1: So pretty early on. Well, interestingly enough, contemporary scholarship today likes to quickly dismiss this story as a fable. They'll oftentimes say that it. It was kind of a replay of, of the story of Moses when he was born and how the, his life had to be spared, you know, sending them down the river in a basket. And the argument goes like this, that Josephus, in his writings, who apparently was pretty meticulous at articulating everything that Herod had been doing wrong his cruelty, doesn't make any mention of the, uh, the slaughter of the children. And, and, of course, then the skeptics assume that must mean it didn't really happen. But there's another way, and I, I kind of liked it while I was listening to the way Jeff was describing Herod. Herod really was a very not-well person, you know, mentally. He, and to be honest, you know, now we have we have this notion, a lot of times there have been traditions like it was a slaughter of 10,000 children. Actually, statistic remember the, the old little town of Bethlehem. You are least of the, the thousands of Judah. We're talking a small community here. Perhaps the more realistic expectation is that it could have been a dozen boys that died that were two years of age or younger, some something in that that range, and that maybe Josephus was looking at it and going, based on all the things that this nutcase Herod had done, this is this was insignificant in Herod's world. This didn't matter. Life, life only mattered to Herod if it mattered to Herod. He didn't have it. Didn't see an intrinsic value to human life. So historically speaking, they still don't have secular evidence of this or or outside of Scripture proof of it. Doesn't doesn't rattle me in the least, because I think one of the most important logical things to remember is that if this was a fable, why in the world would Mary and Joseph uh, take the baby and leave to go to Egypt to escape from that? And why also would the wise men go a different route? Because... Because Herod was capable of all this. And so I, I would counter and say, no evidence doesn't mean it's not real. It just means you don't have any evidence yet.
3: And, and it's a, a simple principle that if, if you're the one coming along saying, oh, that's not real, that didn't happen, the burden of proof is on you because <laughs> right. you're the one who's making the claim. The burden of proof is not on the on, on the one saying, no, this is this is what happened.
0: So why is it important to remember this day?
1: First of all, we teach that there's an intrinsic value to human life. It's uh, your life is valuable not because you are pretty or handsome or strong or healthy. You could be weak. You could be ugly. You could be disabled. You could be poor health. Your life is still valuable. And this this foundational principle that there's an intrinsic value to to human life is like sometimes in the secular world the one thing. That holds at bay entire mayhem, and what you do is in the in the massacre of the children of, of Bethlehem, you see that that barrier is dropped, because when we, even though we as strong Christians believe in this this universal quantitative value to human life, your life is valuable because you're you're human, you're alive. Even we, though, still have a special place for the most defenseless among us. And that would be children, and you know we had we had this horrible event occur in Waukesha, with uh, the guy driving the van through and or SUV and uh, and killing a, a number of people who were older, mm-hmm. but then the one child died.
0: Yeah, no, I I was thinking of that event as well. Just the fact too that you mentioned that at first it came out that the five people had died and they were all older, and I mean my heart went out to all of them and their families and thinking about if it had been my parents or in-laws or anybody and how that would have drastically affected our family. But when it came out that the eight-year-old boy had died because of his injuries, that hit me really hard. I I have an eight-year-old boy, so I thought that was part of it. But then I also saw people on the news and everyone who I talked to. There was something about that particular death that made an impact on just about everyone that I, I talked with. And so it did make me wonder, what is it about a death of a child that really impacts our society so much
3: from a completely unreligious even unphilosophical i suppose it's getting into the realm of philosophy anyway just potential when a child dies you think about he's he's hardly had a chance to live What, what could he have done with his life where could he have gone what could he have done the people that he could have known that people would have benefited from knowing him, all those kinds of things. He has, he has, he has his entire life ahead of him. And uh, we, we tend just kind of, from a dispassionate point of view, to not feel quite the same way about somebody who dies at, at 80 or 90, because it's like, well, they've lived most of their life already. They've done all of those things. Not saying that it doesn't hurt or there's no tragedy, but most people would kind of sense that you know there's a big difference there in terms of what lies ahead and the potential and such. And so I think just about anybody recoils from the death of a child, or perhaps we should say should recoil from that.
1: Well, and let let me let me do a little quiz here. The uh, in this story, who are the heroes? That would be probably the wise men, the angel who warned him in a dream, and Mary and Joseph and for Mary taking and Joseph. away mm, Jesus. Right. Who are the villains? Herod. Herod and the soldiers. Right. But we're, we're missing the third villain that, that critics will often point out, and that is God. Some of the most scathing criticism has always been of God. Why did God allow this to happen? Jesus came, and of course, then, then they like to use the number 10,000. Because, because this baby was born in Bethlehem, 10,000 children died and everything. What I like to, like to do is I like to turn it around, and I'll say, Okay. I'm not going to debate with you whether God's at fault. I mean, because that really gets into a deep philosophical discussion about why there is evil and what, what accountability is there for people, uh, when for their evil actions, you know, and why did, and if God's so great, why couldn't God have stopped it? Let's try a different way. Let's, let's talk about the heroes and let's talk about the people who saved, the people who protected, the people who warned. Now, in the story of life today, which one are you are you the hero are you the one who's seeking to protect the child are you the one seeking or are you the one who's the enemy the, the bad guy in the story and i a lot of times people and it's a it's a polemical device that people use to to name well i used to always joke that when i give presentations that you know, if you always want to do a safe thing, quote a dead person. You know, they, they can't come back to say, I never said that or anything. <laughs> and so a lot of times, you know, they'll go after God or something. They'll go after. But I always tell everybody that when you begin to translate the story and what it means for you today, if all Scripture is written for my learning, and so I, I'm reading this story, what am I learning from that? First of all, I see the depravity of people. To be able to have the wherewithal to order the killing of two-year-olds and younger Personally, you know, everyone always talked about the terrible twos, but when my girls were two years old, that's when I I loved them the most. I mean that they just were fun. You know, they were doing things interactive to get into a little mischief. Maybe I know where that came from. I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll talk about that another day. And to imagine that being lost was, was painful. It was a heartache. But what am I learning? Okay, I'm learning. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a herod. I don't want to be a soldier. I want to be a Mary and a Joseph. I want to protect and And quite honestly, the, the story of Mary and Joseph in Egypt was very critical component in my personal life to get me involved. Because everyone everyone's at a pivot point in life. You're at a crossroads. And you have to make a decision. Do I remain silent? Do I speak up? Do I do something? Do I do nothing? Do I step in or do I walk away? And Mary and Joseph, they get warned and they say, we need to protect the child. And it's not just any child, but right now, we'll just say it's just the child. And when we're told in Philippians 2 to think more of others than we do of ourselves, then protecting your child is my concern. Protecting a child is my concern. And I think that this is oftentimes what—we can throw stones at God, we can throw stones at everybody, but in the end, we're talking about you. What do I get out of this?
3: Yeah, and, uh, you know, your language of heroes and, and villains. I mean, just about any story, real or, or fictional, of you know, that has heroes and villains. I mean, there are lots of other people in the story who aren't either. And if, if it's something that we happen to be witnessing, we tend to think, well, I'm just a neutral observer. I, I, I don't have a place in here. But what, what you mentioned, the Christian's obligation to put others first, there, there's somebody else in this story that very little attention is usually paid to the people of Jerusalem. And it says, when King Herod heard, who is he who has been born king of the Jews, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, what should the people of Jerusalem have felt when they heard this news? <gasps> Hallelujah, the Lord has come. Let's all go find and, and see this guy. This, this baby boy, boy that has been born, let's do No. What were they thinking instead? This is bad. We better hope nothing comes of this because Herod's going to do something really nasty if if this is real.
1: They weren't as apathetic as you would think. They yeah. th- literally were part of the problem.
3: They, yeah. They, they weren't being neutral. They, they were actually kind of, I wouldn't say cheering for the villain, but they were kind of, they, they 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 weren't on the side of the heroes.
1: When I see a pro-abortion marches, uh, I find them most annoying, you know, some of the clever signs. not just the simplistic and somewhat mindless, you know, my body, my choice, but you get keep your rosaries off my ovaries. Uh, that's one of my favorites. And the, uh, but, but I mean, you see others, these men shouldn't be making our decisions and everything quite wrong, really. They're just, and, and not about who makes your decisions, but rather we have an obligation to be concerned about everybody else. In fact, think about when when they're in an abortion march, supposedly they're standing up for the rights of all women. Now, how, why what makes that more right than me standing up for the rights of children and unborn children? And one of the things that we make a mistake when we get involved with, with debating this issue with people who differ with us is that we kind of allow illogic to stand and that and the illogic of their position. If you're arguing for women's rights, then am I not right to argue for for other people's rights as well? And like the unborn child? And any any abortion rights activist worth their salt today already knows that in an abortion a child dies. There's no secret. That's and any abortion rights activist today who says, well, it's not really a life, just apparently isn't with the program. Today, abortion rights activists will argue personhood. They'll say it's alive, but it's not really a person or it doesn't really have rights and so forth. And again, that, that's something in their own imagination. Doesn't it's, feel pain. Doesn't feel yeah. pain, which is also not true. But But either way, it's in their own imagination. But even if it didn't feel pain they they oftentimes just miss the point because the moment you begin to step in that that terrain I mean let's look back again at what Herod ordered uh, all children two years and younger he wasn't he wasn't just targeting the Christ child he needed to target any possibility of the Christ child and all other life is irrelevant now when you when Koop spoke at our convention back in the 1980s he made the statement he goes it's a small leap in logic to go from taking life inside of the womb to taking life outside of the womb. And the moment you begin to say that, you know, I'm I'm going to go, he knew the time of the time for the magi and so forth, but he he says we're going we're going to swipe out the all the way up to 2 years old the the males. And the same thing with abortion, you know, pretty soon it's okay not just we want abortion in the womb, but then if you're like I said Virginia Ironside in in Great Britain, she thinks you should be able to terminate a life outside of the womb when they're born. And there have been people who have who have argued that if a child's born disabled, the child's life should be able to be determined. And then the people say, "But if you've developed advanced dementia uh, and you can't make a decision for yourself, that we should default to a decision that your life should be terminated." In, in other words, they they take this this greater liberty, and it's all because of of a Herodian disvalue for human life.
3: And as Christians, we can't be neutral on that we can't be apathetic and there are so many uh christians who maintain that they 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 love their lord they love love his people they love his word and yet when it comes to these issues of life whether it's abortion or euthanasia or assisted suicide or whatever they would just rather put up with those things than deal with the trouble that might come if 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 somebody fights against it, even if they themselves don't in any way get, get involved, they're just like, just keep it quiet. Let's let's not talk about that. It causes too much trouble. I, I see that as very similar to the people of Jerusalem in the story. they they just rather, let's keep this quiet. We don't want things to get any worse than they are right now.
1: Yeah. And I want to go back to the two-year-old thing. Just imagine the different emotional feel. So Herod, Herod ordered some of the children to be killed. Herod ordered two-year-old boys and younger to be killed. Both hurt. The second hurts a little bit more.
0: It does. Yeah, as you Mm -hmm. begin to
1: define it and you close it in and do it. And somebody asked me a few years back, you know, why I've been involved so long. You know, I I really started getting involved in these issues back in 1976. The reason is, is because of two-year-olds. You know, I, I told you how much I loved my girls when they were they were two, and I, I still love them. Just for the record, I still love them. <laughs> but I love the children you know, when they were two. But I, I always try to see, whenever people talk to me about life in the womb and so forth, I always try to see everyone in my mind as a two-year-old. Because when I would, you know, um, I used to get up in the middle of the night uh, to make sure the girls were breathing when they were babies. I was, I was always a little bit worried about SIDS and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And But it, it's interesting. At two years old... They can say the cutest things. They can do some really nasty things. Mm-hmm. They can be quietly asleep. They can be agitated with illness. They could be thrown a tantrum, and again, they could be very sweet. But in all of them, oh, you develop this love for them. And so when they say, "Well, you know, in the womb, it, you know, they don't, they're not aware of their surroundings or anything," well, I'm not so sure at two years old how aware they were they were of their surroundings when they were sound asleep. But I was aware. The the story of the, the massacre of the innocents, and, and I don't care if it was ten thousand, if it was twelve or it was one, it was a horrible thing because it not only was a life created by God and given to a mother and a father, and it was a life that for which God says I'm going to offer the ultimate sacrifice for all the evil these people did that took your child's life, and I'm going to make it work out for your good. He did, and sometimes when I when I have had to console families who have lost children at a very hard time, you ultimately you lean on the one who created them. He said, "I'm going to do exactly what's right," and and you may not understand it, but this is where you trust me, and and I do. I I have to admit I've thought often about the parents of the those who lost the children.
0: Yeah, I. I feel, too, especially in the season of life I'm in right now, um, my youngest is a few months shy of two. And so definitely hearing you talk about all those things, and, I mean, she really, in so many ways, is the life of the party at our house, too. And it, it does really make me think of these parents, too. Just I know, like, a lot of people do go back to how can a loving god allow this to happen and the just i mean it's just such a terrible thing and even if it was just a dozen or less it's just it's just really really devastating to to think about that
3: yeah and you know this is pure conjecture and yeah, it's just one of those those things you, you I I've, I've always wondered why is it that in the Gospels we never read anything about Jesus going to Bethlehem? I mean, you, you would kind of think that this is the place where the shepherds uh, gave testimony to who he was. It seemed to me to be a, a slam dunk kind of thing to, to help establish who he was. But use a little bit of imagination, I, I, I could almost imagine him not going because there would be people there who remembered what happened because of him.
1: We often like to defer blame. We get, and I, I guess I, I'm hesitant to get into the whole, you know, why does God allow evil to happen in this episode? I think we should devote one or maybe a, a chain of episodes to that discussion uh, because I think there's a lot that we need to understand. But what is clear is all of the evil that seems to go on around us is triggered not by decisions of God, but by decisions of men by whether whether it's the evil of i'm going to eat of the tree that I shouldn't eat of or if it's the evil of i'm jealous of my brother, so i'm going to kill him and all of those we could argue that why did God let it happen how about how about we be a little bit less godly about it and ask why did the other believing people let that happen let let's just let's just quick take take it off the shoulders of God for a moment and just simply say. What about all the other people that could have stopped it? What about all the people of Jerusalem who, instead of, instead of seeing this as a good thing, were alarmed by it? And even if you remember at the death of Lazarus, who was deeply loved by his sisters, Jesus says, even though you die, you live. And he isn't saying you're going to escape death. He just said, death has no sting. It, it's not going to, It's going to look like the worst thing to you, but it isn't the worst thing. And but it's funny because a lot of times when we we try to sort out these hard, very very heartfelt hard issues, it's almost like we we don't want to live by faith. We want to live by sight. So I really, at some point, I am going to demand an explanation from God. But then he's not God anymore. He's just somebody a logical equal who will come down to your level and and finally you know dumb me down so that I can understand it. Then he's not God anymore.
3: And and that's the beautiful thing about the book of Job. Anyway, we we can yeah. spend a lot more time on that part. But thirty chapters or so of of the book is first his so called friends and then Job himself saying, Okay, God, I've got a bone to pick with you and and God's answer is basically Who do you think you are?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> then, I mean in the end he didn't answered job's question, he asked his own question <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. well and and plus two let's not let's not think overly lightly about packing your bags and heading to Egypt. I mean mm-hmm. there's peril involved in that there there's risk all the time in taking in what you're doing and and hardship and so forth, and you know couldn't it have been better you know and of course what do you, what are we ultimately longing for? We already want heaven. Even even in the biblical story of the very earliest moments of Jesus' life, we want heaven on earth. We want we want it to be perfect. We don't we don't want Herod wanting to kill children. We don't want people being apathetic or or alarmist over over the birth of the Christ child. We don't want peril for Mary and Joseph going to Egypt. We want everything to be we want heaven. And God said that's that's what I'm working on.
0: So, here we are, two thousand years after this event. How should we remember the baby boys of Bethlehem today?
1: I, I I would say that that you analyze why it hurts, and it hurts because inside, we do recognize there's an intrinsic value to human life. and what we spend our time doing is we try to cloud it over to justify. Doing wrong things, thinking thinking that it's a, a disposable life, or but instead, the story the story of death of anyone is heartfelt, is troubling. The story of a child is even more troubling, for a potential you know, child's potential and so forth. But I would say that I think you focus on it because it it's it's that built in knowledge that God gives you that that there's a value here. It's why I don't kill people. It's why. I, I don't hit people. It's, it's um, that, that deep love for God's gift of life.
0: Well, thank you both very much for your insight with the story today. And we look forward to uh, coming back next week in the new year. Happy New Year. We'll see you next time. Bye.
2: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Life Challenges podcast from Christian Life Resources. Please consider subscribing to this podcast, giving us a review wherever you access it, and sharing it with friends. We're sure you have questions on today's topic or other life issues. Our goal is to help you through these tough topics, and we want you to know we're here to help. You can submit your questions as well as comments or suggestions for future episodes at lifechallenges.us or email us at podcast at christianliferesources.com. In addition to the podcasts, we include other valuable information at lifechallenges.us, so be sure to check it out. For more about our parent organization, please visit christianliferesources.com. May God give you wisdom, love, strength, and peace in Christ for every life challenge.